All right, all right. Back at it. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving with your families. Mine was awesome. Had a nice long weekend. Visiting with some friends, watching sports, rode bikes. Was talking with Mark on Sunday. We're both feeling like, we both feel like two gluttonous pigs right now. The holidays just started. So we're working on fitness goals for next year. Fewer heavy meals, cut way back on our beer and wine consumption. Do five to six days of cardio a week until we start to feel like we're back into our fighting shape. We wrote a few weeks ago, for the first time in a very long time, I hit peak heart rate on a climb that normally does not gas me. And I was wasted for the rest of the ride. And I swore I wasn't going to let that happen to me again. So we did the very same ride on Sunday. And we finished it the quickest that we've ever ridden it. So we're not stopping there. It's good to set goals, you know. And don't start them on January 1st. Start them now. Get a head start. Like my ice cream was a big hit. But I had confidence in that one. What I didn't have confidence in were the Brussels sprouts. Because I knew there's a there's a lot fewer people who like those than those who do. So the Thanksgiving-inspired curry really had to deliver. And it did tenfold. Everybody was eating Brussels sprouts. I felt like I created gateway Brussels sprouts. With the cranberry bark for the ice cream, man. Damn. I didn't expect that to be as much work as it was. It's such a tiny element in the dish. It took close to seven hours to dehydrate it, to get the texture I wanted. Then it became a royal pain in the ass to get it off the silicon mat. And my dumb ass, I always find a way to make things harder on myself. Instead of just cutting this stuff into strips, I decide it would be cute to cut them into heart shapes. It took me almost two hours to get 18 of these things. One tiny element. Way too much work for myself. I never cease to make life tough in the kitchen. <laughs> but hey, it was fun. So one of the headlines from yesterday was that CNN finally felt their backs were against the wall far enough and they suspended Chris Cuomo for going behind everyone's backs to help his brother in that sexual harassment scandal that he got himself into. And I don't know what CNN wants out of this. What do they want, a pat on the back? They should have been looking into this months ago when the story first broke and maybe suspend him then. There's a reason why I turn my back on that network. Politics aside, they shit all over Trump when he was in office. Then they turn around. They start piling on Biden once he takes office. They're a horrible example of fair and balanced journalism. Too many opinions, not enough actual news. They just want to sell advertising. And the only way to do that is to pile on whoever's in office. But when it comes to one of their own, they'll shield him and the corporation because Cuomo brings ratings. And everybody loved watching the two brothers sparring last year when COVID was in full swing. I got sucked into it. But now, man, CNN can suck a dick. And hey, I think I said this before. Cuomo did what any other brother would do if his brother was in hot water. As a human being, I get it. I totally understand why he did what he did. But he's the face of a major network that's constantly under scrutiny. And he has a moral responsibility as a journalist. And he failed in that regard. And as I suspected, 
that Arbery verdict, it came down before last week's show even hit the feed. All three of those dudes got a generous supply of guilty verdicts that could possibly send them all to prison for what could be life. Meanwhile, Rittenhouse, he's being hailed as some kind of a hero for what he did. I don't get any of this bullshit. Marcus Arbery, Ahmad's father, they did this press conference afterward. He said after the verdict that he didn't want to see any more parents lose their kids to gun violence, black or white. He said all life matters. But it sounded like he said all lives matter to a lot of people. Either way, it's the same thing. So now we have someone who's just lost their son to what certainly appears to be a racially motivated crime coming out and saying all life matters, not just black lives. And these the members of the media are trying to make a clear delineation between all lives and all life so they can continue running with their agenda. Stupid. Like Newsweek was the first to do that. And I wonder what the hell happened to that magazine? I used to love that magazine. Now it's like the Inquirer. I read something thought-provoking over the weekend. It was an article on this psychology site. It was about how important it is to replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts as quickly as you can and how bad it is for your mental health to dwell on negative thoughts or negative things that happen either in your life or in someone else's life. The thought is that the longer that you dwell on the negative, the more it's going to keep you in a negative state. And this seems pretty basic, you know, not like this is some groundbreaking idea. But I wondered how many people actually do this, whether it's a tragedy or the fact that you stubbed your toe or got, you know, cut off in traffic. I think it's a good practice to evaluate just how important these negative thoughts that you're having are. Give yourself an adequate amount of time to be pissed off or sad or however you're feeling. And if you find yourself dwelling on it for too long or going back to it and dwelling on it after you've moved on from it to something else, immediately think of something positive that happened to you. Anything. Like the first time your kid made you laugh or something that you're looking forward to. And always have something that you look forward to. It's, it's okay to get upset over things. We're humans. But the longer we dwell on negative things, the deeper they become burned into our memories and start to affect us. Some things are never going to leave our memory, like the loss of a loved one or a pet or a friend. But the further detached we get from that loss, the more time that passes, those losses become less and less painful. And when they do, that's when we know that we've healed. Like three weeks after I lost my wife, my friends were feeling horrible for me. I was in a bad place. So one of them said, I know what you need right now. You need to be in the mountains for the weekend. Clear your head. These guys know me, right? I said, you know, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should go camping, go hiking, backpacking or something. Get away from all this. He said, no, no, we're going with you. You're not going to be up there alone. That's the kind of friends I have. That's what my brother does. That's what these guys do. So we did. We took off for five days. We camped on BLM land east of Yosemite. And that first night there, we're making dinner, playing cards, drinking some beers, just chilling in the mountains. And one of my friends, this guy, he gets 10 times funnier when he drinks. 
He's making us laugh so hard. One of my friends is wiping tears from his eyes. My cheeks hurt. And this went on every night that we were up there. So then on the drive home, I started, I started having this sense of guilt. Like, how could I laugh and have a good time with my friends so soon after this tragedy? And why did I feel guilty? Did I not deserve a break from being sad and in a depressed state after that happened? And that was one of the first things I brought up in therapy and ended up using it as a learning tool while working through some of my issues. Being able to push negative thoughts away, even if for a little while, and allowing yourself some time to put your mind on other things, you owe that to yourself. You can't go back and rewind the clock, all right? You have to move forward. And this was one of my flaws and something I had to work through in these sessions. Find happiness, irregardless of what turmoil you find yourself in, because you deserve that. And if you don't feel that you do, you have problems with self-esteem or how you value yourself. Or maybe you don't love yourself enough to give yourself a break. And you should work on that. Everybody should do this. You think of these small flaws that you have as wrinkles in your bed sheets, Even if they're small, work through them. And once you iron these things out, you'll just, you'll sleep so much better. Man, I didn't mean for that to get so serious. <laughs> I, I should get to the poop joke soon or everyone's going to tune out. Okay, so the first night that Don and I were on that trip, we camped just outside of St. George, Utah, this campground that Don found. We, we couldn't get a reservation because it was just too late. It was dark. It was black. But there were a few parking spaces left, so Don's tent is on top of his truck. Just give him enough space to bring the ladder down and he can sleep on top of his truck. I ended up just on, across the way from him in this big communal area where you could pitch your tent anywhere. Now, it's jet black. We can't see anything, right? There are two other couples there, these stoner kids. I mean, look, they were saying some really insipid bullshit, total stoners, all right? I'm not labeling. I'm saying it like it is. So we're going to bed. I get into my tent, in my sleeping bag. I turn my lantern off. I lay down, and it's somewhat quiet. I can hear one of the girls giggling at her boyfriend, which is fine. Cute, right? I can get to sleep easier with a little bit of noise than I can when it's just dead silent. So she starts giggling more and more. And I'm starting to think, oh no, please don't start banging over there, you know. I need to get to sleep. And I know I'm going to see your faces in the morning. It's going to get weird. Save it, right? So it gets quiet for about one full minute. Then I hear this. (coughs) All right, they're smoking pot. Now I think it's funny. I start laughing to myself a little bit. Then 15 seconds later, (laughs) she hits it and she can't take it well. Obviously, her boyfriend, he's a seasoned pro. I could tell even before he started smoking pot, this guy was a little light on brain cells, but this, this just proved it. Kept going. This went on back and forth at least 10, 15 times. I lost count because it ceased to be funny after a while and I wanted to get to sleep. 
So finally, there's this lull, right? Then I hear the kid yell out, Dude, what was that noise? His friend's in the other tent with his girlfriend, right? He said, what, what, what noise? It's my dog moving around in here. Guy's got his dog with him. Oh, thank God. I thought it was a bear. Now I'm thinking, a bear? Dude, we're not in the deep woods. We're in high desert. There's no fucking bears out here, you dumbass. Now she's giggling even more than before, obviously. Pot makes you giddy. Now I really don't hope they end up doing it, because people like to do that shit. Get high as a kite, then go at it. So I force myself to blank out as quickly as I can so I can get to sleep, which I eventually did. So the next morning, I got a good look at this kid, because it was black from the moment we got there, right? I had no idea what these kids looked like. Total stoner. Not quite Jeff Spicoli, but well on his way. And that was the first night. I knew that trip was going to be one for the ages. And of course, I've got to tell the entire story to Don on the drive out of there. Because Don goes to sleep like 45 seconds after his head hits a pillow. So he misses this stuff. Bear. (laughs) Hey, it looks like Jack Dorsey is stepping down as CEO of Twitter. I have no idea what this means, but I hope good comes from it. Like Twitter's a useful tool when you want to share something, like we do on Facebook, right? And it's a decent news aggregator, but I refuse to dig deep on comments because it just gets very stupid very fast. I don't know enough about Dorsey to say whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, so I've got no opinion on it. It'll just be interesting to see which path Twitter takes once he steps down. Because Twitter is one of those things uh, I use in a way so it doesn't give me anxiety or upset me the way Facebook used to. I read posts from people I like, I respect, I get news on there. I create lists for Formula One, cycling, rock climbing, things I'm interested in. So I can get a steady stream of tweets on a particular subject. And I don't even read the comments on those posts. I just get this nice long stream of content and see what's going on. And also, don't look now, but the Patriots are 7-5. and Three more wins. My prediction at the start of the season could ring true here. Very few people expected them to reach the playoffs. But now they very well might. Some are saying, you know, the Patriots might be the best team in the AFC. I don't think so. But if they reach the playoffs, it'll be the very first time I've been able to pick a dark horse. And it won't matter if they get wiped out in the first round. I'll tell you a thought I had last week. Ever since January, people can't stop talking about the 2024 presidential election. And the closer it gets, it's three years away, by the way. The closer it gets, the more people are going to be talking about it. You want to know how stupid that is to me? That would be like if I started talking about the 2024 Super Bowl and how I'm predicting the Patriots and the Cardinals will go head to head in it. That's how stupid I find that shit. People can't stop talking about politics just like sports nuts can't stop talking about sports. It's crazy to me. Then again, I can't stop talking about sports either. (laughs) Like Tiger gave his first full interview this week since his crash here in California earlier this year. His big revelation was that he'll never be a full-time golfer on the PGA Tour again. Like that was news. This dude's had multiple back surgeries, 
spinal cord fusion surgery. He wasn't playing the best golf anyway. And now this. Yeah, it's safe to say that's no revelation. It sucks for his career to end this way. But I would love if the few tournaments that he does play are majors, which he's certainly qualified for if he's a previous champion. You know, miracles do happen, but uh, I wouldn't be putting money down on Vegas over it. It was what he didn't say in that interview that really surprised me. He didn't say anything about giving up on driving. This dude's got more money than God. He can't afford a driver. I know you want to feel like everybody else and drive all over the place. But face it, Tiger, you can drive just fine on a golf course, but on the roads, your driving sucks a bag of dicks. Reminds me of the jokes that Rodney Dangerfield used to tell about his wife being such a bad driver. Like one time she hit a deer, but it was in the zoo. Just last week she hit a tree, but she claims it wasn't her fault. She honked the horn. That's Tiger. This guy's been in two serious accidents and has been arrested for driving under the influence of heavy narcotics. There comes a time when you have to be honest with yourself and admit that being behind the wheel isn't for you. You use poor judgment. Get a driver. You've got the money. Oh, and this was good. I came across this interview from MTV sometime in 1983. One of the VJs from MTV was interviewing David Bowie. Now, in 83, Bowie was having his largest pop resurgence, right? So Bowie asked this guy why there aren't more black artists featured on MTV. And mind you, this is 1983, all right? New wave, rock music, a couple heavy metal bands. They were making up the vast majority of music on the pop charts outside of Michael Jackson and maybe a, a couple of others. But listen to this. I'm just floored by the fact that there's so, many, so few black artists featured on it. Why is that? I think that we're trying to move in that direction. We want to play artists that seem to be doing music that fits into what we want to play for MTV. There's th the company's thinking in terms of narrow casting. That's evident. Um, it's evident in the fact that the only few black artists that one does see are on about 2.30 in the morning or, on, or to around 6. Very few are featured predominant, no. predominantly during the day. No. That, uh, that's a I'll say that over the last couple of weeks these things have been changing, but it, it's, no, uh, it's a I, slow process. I know. It's, it's funny. I think people have different perceptions. When you wind up watching, let's say you watch an hour or two or even three a day, people somehow come away with different ideas about what we are doing. We don't have any kind of day parting for anything, mm. let alone a black artist day parted out of what, what would be, quote, prime time. Mm. We don't have that. Because one sees a lot on the... On the there's a, one black station on uh, television that I keep picking up. I'm not sure which station it's on. But there's a, there seem to be a lot of black artists making very good videos that I'm surprised aren't used on MTV. Well, of course, also we have to try and do what we think not only New York and Los Angeles will appreciate, but also uh, Poughkeepsie or Midwest, pick some town in the Midwest that will be scared to death by Prince, which we're playing, or a string of other black faces That's and black very music. interesting. Isn't that interesting? You know, we have, to, uh, we have to play the music that we think an entire country is going to like, and certainly we're a rock and roll station now. The question would be asked, well, should, uh, since we're in New York, should PLJ 
play, uh, you know, uh, the Isley Brothers. Well, you and I might say, yeah, because we have grown up in an era when the Isley Brothers mean something to me, and so do the Spinners, even way after the Isley Brothers. But what does it mean to a 17-year-old? Well, if you talk on the phones to these guys like I did when I was in radio, it's Well, scary. I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what maybe the Isley Brothers or Marvin Gaye means to a black 17-year-old. Ah. And surely he's part of America as well. No as question. Me. I'll give the VJ some credit. At least he was honest, okay? Outside of large metropolitan areas, the rest of America were scared shitless of black people, black artists, because they simply didn't get it or weren't interested. Imagine this. Four or five years later, hip-hop took off. Rap took off. Janet Jackson became arguably more popular than her brother for a little while. People got to see what they'd been missing all that time. MTV Raps became one of the most popular shows on MTV before they started all the other, you know, stupid shit like The Real World, Jersey Shore, a bunch of other lame reality shows. Like outside of Catfish, I don't know one single reality show that they've produced that I could find watchable for more than 10 minutes. I just thought this was interesting. And I wonder if David Bowie's influence had anything to do with opening the channels of, you know, at MTV to bring hip-hop to the mainstream. Speaking of reality TV, I thought Tiger King 2 was going to be this big splash. Turns out, no one's talking about it. It's got like a 16% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Just a dud. I watched it the first week that it was released. Honestly, I didn't know what to say about it which is why I left it out of our discussion last week. It gives a lot of backstory to both Joe Exotic and the disappearance of Carol Baskin's first husband, Howard. Then it starts to wrap up how everyone else is left to pick up the pieces. It's kind of gross. Like Jeff Lowe, the guy who screwed Joe Exotic out of his tiger ranch, we later find out that he set Joe up. It was a fake hit. They never intended on doing it to Carol Baskin. Instead, he turns him in for uh, cruelty to animals charges so he could take his ranch. So Jeff and his skeevy wife, right, they end up having employees spot hot women who enter the park and they bring them to Jeff's house so he and his wife can have threesomes with him. They do an interview. His wife's laying on this couch next to her scantily clad friend and she's wearing this one-piece undergarment thing. You can see right through it. You can see everything. Zero class. Jeff even tries to build this VIP area of the park, complete with a private strip club. Like a delusional bitch, like any affluent businessman or celebrity is going to come and visit this makeshift strip club in the middle of bumfuck Egypt, Oklahoma, that houses tigers and shit, reeks of monkey poop. A delusional dipshit. So then Joe Exotic tries to get Trump to pardon him. This doesn't work out because the president ends up getting covid then loses the election, all hell breaks loose. The most shocking and interesting part to me is this character, Tim Stark, who goes into business with Lowe. Ends up doing all the work, of course, because Lowe is a lazy con artist. Stark owned Wildlife in Need in Indiana before he tries to create this new zoo with Lowe. He's going to bring all of his animals down. But this guy got into deep shit. I guess he formed his habitat in 1999, it was a non-profit. 
he claimed to rescue and rehabilitate wildlife and then set them free. But it turns out that the animals that went in there ended up suffering a terrible life, like animals were dehydrated, starved, and kept in really small cages. And he had a vet on staff that was so inept that he or she, whoever it was, botched procedures that caused these animals to die. The Indiana Attorney General's office told us they have filed dozens of exhibits, multiple motions with Tim Stark, demanding that he not bring animals back from Oklahoma, that he not bring people to his property. He's doing it all anyways. He's completely ignoring it. There was one report that said he beat a leopard cub to death with a baseball bat. A little cub. So what really got him in trouble was that Stark kept no paperwork on which animals were brought in or when they were supposedly released back into the wild. Why? Take a guess. Most of the animals were killed. They never saw freedom. He used them for as long as he could, mistreated them, and when they could no longer perform, he killed them. And this guy, I mean, he's so blunt and in your face. He practically admits that he could give a shit about these animals. He talks about them like they're property. Anytime you possess something, it's yours, period. Which means that it is, from that day forward, your personal property to pretty much do with whatever you see fit to fit your needs. If I wanted to go and shoot a tiger and skin him out and butcher him and have tiger steaks for dinner, it's my fucking prerogative. It's my animal, my property. Nobody has the right to tell me what I can or cannot do with my property. And God himself says I can do with them what I, what I choose. It's my property. I can do with it whatever the hell I want to. No, you can't, you fucking redneck. Especially the kind of animals you're in possession of. These are protected species. If there were any other kind of pet, like a dog or a cat, and you tried that kind of shit, you'd still be in legal trouble. You cannot abuse animals. What a piece of dog shit. I like how dumb fucks like this guy quote the Bible. Like there's some enlightened Christian. Yet he curses at people right to their face, threatens to shoot people, mistreats animals, kills them, all kinds of atrocities. It's always the same with people like this. It's right there in the Bible. Oh yeah, where? Where in the Bible does it say that this is true? Well, look it up. Sure, I'll look it up. You ever see the size of the Bible with the one-point type? Maybe, I don't know, narrow it down, all right? So I'm not searching for a month for something that isn't there in the first place. And even if they find the passage that they're referring to, if they quote it, it's got nothing to do with what they're talking about. It's all up to interpretation. Like, for those who seek knowledge of the flesh shall be cursed to the valley of flames. See? There it is right there. You cannot restrict a person's right to own a handgun. <laughs> this guy is one scary hillbilly. I'm telling you. I'm going to get to the good shit here. I guess in February of last year, a USDA judge ruled that he had willfully violated the Animal Welfare Act over 120 times. 120 times. This is between January 2012 January 2016. 
So the judge revokes his license, fines him $300,000, and an additional $40,000 in civil penalties. For years, he said that no one will take his animals alive, that he'll throw grenades at people, and he successfully intimidated USDA inspectors by brandishing a gun. Here at Wildlife in Need, the judge gave the Attorney General's office two eight-hour days to complete this inspection. That means about four minutes to inspect each of Stark's hundreds of animals. I'm getting fucked in this shit, and I'm not going to tolerate it. It's already been proven that the Attorney General's office is in conspiracy with PETA. That's not you true. Know, the hell of no it ain't. Shut the fuck up and don't even tell me what you're wanting to tell me. Because as you see, half the people's here, half the people's out there. And I'm not going to tolerate the shit of you motherfuckers think you're going to separate and go different directions and try to fuck my shit. I'm not going to tolerate. Wildlife and Need founder Tim Stark is expected back in court tomorrow. The judge is bringing him in after he didn't follow court orders and was held in contempt of court. Just listen to how this guy talks to people, especially police officers, courtroom bailiffs. He threatens these young girls, these ex-employees who blew the whistle on him talks to the prosecuting attorneys like they're shit on his shoe. Tim Stark had a lot to say in court today, most of it unsolicited commentary that the judge actually had to ask him to stop. Witnesses say after his outburst, seven more sheriff's deputies were brought in as extra security. Question for you, I'm I'm offering you all everything you have. Walk away, leave me a fuck alone. You're offering us nothing. Oh, I know, I'm offering you, what the fuck are you offering me? Well, we can play the shit show continues, fuck you. Fuck you, the shit show will continue, you sorry prick. Tim, anything you want to say? Make sure everybody gets in there, you bunch of fucktard motherfuckers. Watch what happens when I get you on the stand. Let's see what happens. Are you ready for that? Then I'm going to show you that you're a lying little fucking cunt that you are. You wanted to go so against me? I'll do that. I can talk the fuck out once. Okay. You know, I ain't a goddamn courtroom now. I can talk to them however the hell I want. It's fucking English language, motherfucker. You know? Anything else, Tim? Ah, man. These are human beings with no redeeming value. So in the end, Stark, he loses all of his animals, ends up declaring bankruptcy. Lowe lost his property. Excuse me, Joe Exotic's property. Carol Baskin gets it. Carol Baskin is the only one who ends up unscathed. Five episodes in Tiger King 2. Each one plays out like the last 30 minutes of Casino. You remember that movie? Remember how many people get whacked at the end of Casino? One by one by one. Everybody who was involved got taken out. I'm not one for watching reality smut on TV, but if I were, this satisfied that thirst. What a bunch of yo-hos. All right, I'm out of here. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening, as always. Enjoy your weekend. Big weekend for college football. Watch some football. Until next week, my name is Phil, and this has been Inane. Ciao.